do we think that rather than actually going and trying to educate people in schools about don't do this, do this, is it better to give people alternatives that might be encouraging the slowing down of fashion, but are not necessarily calling it slow fashion? You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me every Tuesday and Friday when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice on making in the UK. Let's crack on with the show. welcome to episode 63 of the Make It British podcast. You heard at the beginning of there Lucy Siegel, who is an environmental journalist and broadcaster and who chaired the first day of talks at our Make It British Live trade show. And on today's episode of the podcast, which is a very long one, so sit down, get yourself a cup of tea, relax and have a good old listen. We're going to be talking about fast and slow fashion and which does the UK do best? Now, Lucy chaired this panel at our event and the panellists included Caroline Ash, who's head of production at Fashion Enter. We also had Julia Redman, who's head of buying at M&Co. Knitwear designer Genevieve Sweeney, who you may have heard on this podcast before and Henrietta Adams, who runs a fantastic slow fashion brand called Henry London, which is well worth checking out. And I will put a link to their companies in the show notes for this episode, which you'll be able to find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash 063, along with several pictures from the day. So you can put the faces to the voices. Some of the points that were raised as part of this fascinating discussion were the importance of knowing where your garment comes from, what the challenges are for big retailers and volume manufacturers to get production capacity in the UK, what the difference is between fast fashion and fast response, because the two are not necessarily one and the same and what some of the barriers are still to growing a UK supply base. I hope you enjoy this discussion. There is some background noise. There's quite a lot of background noise. It was a live event, so please bear with us on that one. We're going to do the best we can to edit a lot of that background noise out of the recording when you hear it. So I hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment because it's a fascinating discussion, particularly some of the questions that were asked by the hundreds of people that were in the audience. And quite a few of you had some really good points to raise, particularly about skills and young people and how we can train them up to understand more about manufacturing and want to go into the manufacturing industry rather than other jobs within fashion. Over to Lucy. So our next panel is about slow fashion versus fast fashion. Its actual title is Fast or Slow Fashion, Which Does the UK Do Best? And we are joined by Julia Redman, Head of Buying at M&Co. Please, Julia, have you got your microphone? There, Andy's got it for you. Welcome, Julia. And joining Julia, we have some... 
amazing, not last minute substitutions, but thank you for coming. We have Caroline Ash, production director. Please take to the stage. I'm actually going to let everyone introduce themselves because um, it's so last minute. Uh, Genevieve. Yes. And Henrietta. Could we start with you down at the far end, please, Genevieve? Nice to meet you. Hi. If you could tell everybody and me a little bit about yourself. I think you're a, a knitwear designer primarily. And also, if you could tell everybody where you sit in the fast versus slow fashion debate. It would be exciting if by the end of it, everyone had changed their mind, wouldn't it? Um, hi, I'm Genevieve, um, and I'm a founder of a premium knitted British knitwear brand, Genevieve Sweeney. Um, I've been running my brand for just over four years um, and I specialise in artisan skills such as like hand intarsia um, and very kind of well, uh, slow process knitting. Um, and I also kind of on the contrast work with more innovative um, techniques like whole garment, which has like no wastage and things like that. Um, so everything is knitted across the UK. Um, and previous to that, I've worked for um, like high-end and high-street fashion brands like Hugo Boss, Lauren Scott, um, Burberry. So I've really kind of experienced the slow and the fast fashion. And how useful a term for you is the term slow fashion? Um, for me, it really kind of signifies a craftsmanship, something that's made um, beautifully with care, with um, kind of yeah, thinking about low wastage and um, something of like, high quality which lasts a lifetime. Um, whereas, and I guess also it's small minimums, um, so only a small amount is made at one time. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. Julia, on to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name's Julia Redman. I am head of buying for M&Co, who is um, a retailer, a UK-wide retailer with about 260 stores you may or may not have heard of, depending on whether you've got one in your local town. Um, I've been with M&Co for about nine years, and we're very much at the beginning of our uh, journey to become a more sustainable retailer. Um, and I think in terms of the fast versus slow fashion element of this conversation, um, I very much sit in the middle. I believe there's room for both. It's just a, about the way we manage both of those things through our industry and the way we deal with it um, in an ethical and sustainable manner. You would be uh, thought of as a fast fashion brand. Is that fair to say? Um, I would say we're probably... I think we're unlikely to be thought of as a fast fashion brand. I think we're very much mid-market, very mainstream. Um, we're certainly at the lower end of the price demographic, so I think that has a real impact on where and how we source our product. Um, but as I say, I think there is, there is room in the industry for us to really develop what we're doing in terms of both fast and slow fashion. Thank you. We'll come back, I'm sure, to that price imperative again and again and again, as we always do. Thanks, Julia. Caroline, welcome. Hello. Um, I work for Fashion Enter. Um, Can you speak right into the microphone? Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so I'm Caroline from Fashion Enter, and we are a London-based ethical factory. We also do training and development, um, so we do apprenticeships level one, two, three, four, and five. Um, we have a tailoring academy just opening soon in, in the summer, um, and 
and we offer young designers um, you know a way into the business we do their patterns their samples for them and we'll do small run production so we try and cover every aspect um, I suppose you would call us fast fashion um, fast fashion doesn't have to be bad quality um, fast fashion just means that you can buy smaller quantities and then you can repeat into it so you're not wasting you're not marking down the price of your garments you're not going into landfill so we make little and often so do you think that fast fashion has been demonized i mean mainly Absolutely. by me let's be honest yes here. yeah yeah it, it really doesn't mean bad quality it just means you can get it to store quicker and we're we're in london and we can produce it quicker so you know we have a unique place in the marketplace at the moment and it's growing the interest in in our london factory Brilliant, thank you. Um, you can tell when you do this who's done a lot of karaoke or not, but these are very directional, so you have to speak me. right into them. Yes, you haven't misspent your youth doing karaoke <laughs> like me. Okay, um, Henrietta, welcome. Um, I um, I was introduced. I mean, I feel like I've met you before. I've seen you before, and I was, but I was introduced to your brand, everything you're doing online yesterday and I'm completely captivated by it but tell, oh, tell everybody about, about it okay so I'm Henrietta Adams I run Henry London um, which is a small women's wear brand um, we sell direct to consumer online and through our shop and um, it's a very small range of timeless products and my commitment is sustainable production and quite specifically using organic cotton and making here in London. So with the organic cotton, I source from India and France, and the fabric is a really important part of the product and the whole brand story. Um, the feel and the quality really comes through. And the local production um, just helps me to source quite small numbers and add things regularly and keep things small and manageable and growing the business from a from a sort of the ground up really in that way who would you say your customer is so my customer is someone who's definitely looking for quality they're not they're not so overtly fashionable um, they're looking for really beautiful pieces they can add to their wardrobe and wear for years and years um, they're thoughtful they don't spend huge amounts on lots and lots of things they buy quite um, little and often I think sorry no spend more but but very occasionally yeah they buy little and for the long term yes yes, yes. <laughs> okay so uh, it's, it's interesting there, um, uh, Caroline, that Hen Henrietta makes the distinction between they're not overtly fashionable. Do you think that's a kind of useful segmentation, if you like, and that fast fashion is catering for the overtly fashionable? Who, who, is, who is fast fashion's audience? Um, I think it can be either, really. Um, in our fashion studio, we, we work with all, all types of designers. So they might be very high fashion or they might be very classic. So I, I think fast fashion can be for either. Okay, and um, I just want to ask you, um, Julia, as someone who's been in, in the industry and seen seen things from, we were talking before, from every every which way and seen lots of trends and cycles come through... What do you think about the staying power of the idea of slowing part of the cycle down? Is it something that's gathered that's gathered speed rather ironically? 
I think it, it's all well it has gathered speed but I think it's almost more about the volume of product we're buying than it is about the um, the, the speed at which we, we get it. So, for example, we are very much, alluding to what you said earlier, we're very much trying to minimise the amount of markdown that we put through our business. So, as a consequence of that, we are reducing the volumes that we buy. Um, that in itself poses all sorts of problems for us in terms of a lot of the manufacturers that we deal with have very high minimums. So, we would be looking, and we very much are looking towards buying closer to home in smaller quantities to try and reduce that markdown level, but also to try and sort of reduce our carbon footprint, make out what we're doing more sustainable. Okay, so reshoring for you, one of the, one of the um, positive uplifts would be fewer markdowns. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. And does that, does that work out in practice? Um, we're yet to find out I think we are at the, right at the beginning of that journey um, and I would say it's not just um, reshoring in terms of, of UK production we are also looking at um, production elsewhere in Europe but that with the constant you know the, the current uncertainty about what's going to happen after Brexit obviously comes with a whole different set of challenges the B word you know there's a fine for that yeah. don't you five pounds directly in into my pocket Okay, um, so so um, in terms of let's answer, try and answer the actual question that we've been set here by Kate Hills. Um, fast or slow fashion, which does the UK do best? Genevieve, how have you found the UK in terms of producing your brand? Um, I think well, with slow fashion, there's a lot of you know, well, there's a few very good. Um, artisans that you can do one-off pieces and I think that's really useful but I've, I've also worked with factories that do minimums of like a hundred pieces um, and you know I guess it's kind of considered fast fashion but um, it's um, you know the, the lead time is still quite long compared to um, Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, the lead time is still quite long, um, but you're using sustainable fabrics and just you know you're paying a living wage. So even though it's a fast fashion, it still um, you know does good to the industry. And um, and I guess it, depending on the size of your brand, 100 pieces um, isn't a huge amount if you're selling kind of globally. So you've got um, you know there's less chance of markdowns and things like that. So what sort of lead times are you are you dealing with? Um, so the lead times could be anything from two weeks to six months. It really depends on the factory. Um, you know, some are in such high demand that it's really quite hard to get on their list. Um, but then when I make kind of smaller runs with the more artisan uh, knitters, I can, you know, I can do small runs. I can make to order and do more bespoke things. So it's a really nice way of offering two different products. If you could change something or have, have a wish, what would it be about UK manufacturing? Um, I think to have more manufacturers and knitwear and, and more um, more people investing kind of skills into things like linking, um, which is really, really hard to find linkers and uh, finishers of garments. Um, so that's my wish. Could you explain what linkers do for the yeah. uninitiated, <laughs> I mean? Um, so linkers are the people that construct um, a jumper together, so that put the seams together. Um, and... Uh, the, the kind of the more higher end is done 
done by hand. So every knitting stitch is matched onto one point. So it's a, it gives you like the highest quality finish and it's really, really beautiful. But um, yeah, there's not, you do learn at university, but there's kind of a huge gap, a generation gap of people that know how to do that. Okay, so Caroline, we're instantly moving into the skills gap area. And, and also we're, we're hearing that there's some lack of capacity as well. Uh, if you could wave your magic wand, what would you what would you ask for, and how can we change this? Um, well, we don't have um, many UK um, stitchers at all um, because all the production moved offshore in the 70s and 80s. So um, we're actually training people. Um, to, to stitch. So we have Eastern Europeans, we have Chinese, we have 11 different nationalities, but there's no British people in our factory and we want to get more British people working. So we actually do training courses ourselves so that um, we can teach people how to stitch. So I would just like more stitchers because we, we are so busy at the moment and we don't have enough skilled workers. And stitching really is a skill. You, you may not think it is, but our, our stitchers are absolutely brilliant and they've got so many years of experience I couldn't do what they do and it's not just it's not deemed as a nice nice career at the moment but they are so very talented and we would like more people to come into the industry what kind of career is it though I mean it's not deemed as a nice career what what is the reality of that career um well they they tend to do the same thing every every day because they get their speed up and um, they're paid on how fast they go. They're on performance-related pay. And we've got a um, unique system called Galaxius um, that helps us monitor and also helps us be completely transparent. So everybody earns minimum wage at least, but a lot of people earn really quite large bonuses because they're, they're stitching well um, and they're getting, the, um, they're getting their quantities through. And why isn't this... Um why isn't this getting out there and why why we're still finding it so hard to recruit people and persuade them that this is a career where you can end you can you can earn well I just think it's an old preconceived idea. When people come to our factory, they understand it. But until you can actually come to our factory and see what we're like, I mean this is our factory, you probably won't be able to see. But it's a nice factory. Um, it's not a sweatshop. Um, you know, the fashion business is tarred with the same brown brush, but we're, we're certainly not a sweatshop. We were as ethical as they come. Um, so we, we just need more workers. And who are you producing for? Um, we're producing for M&Co. Um, Marks and Spencers, Tesco's, ASOS. Um, we're doing also in our fashion studio a lot of high-end designers, and I don't think I can name who they are. And we're also dealing with young and up-and-coming designers. Um, so quite a broad spectrum. Had I known about the relationship, I would not have let them sit next to each other, <laughs> I assure you. I well, actually, you. I agreed with a lot of what Julia said. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> That's not what I'm worried about. Okay, thank you. Hebe, how do you, um, uh, how many staff do you have? Have you had problems recruiting people? And where do you see that pipeline, like future people coming from? Um, 
what in terms of, so we I don't produce we don't produce all our clothes you mean in, within the company yes so but, do you, what do you produce anything uh, no so I, I design and pattern cut personally every single item there's only two of us in the company um, and I outsource to a small factory about 20 minutes away um, there's about 12 people within that factory and um, yeah so I the sampling stage and pattern cutting and designing is done by me I want to have that's why I started the brand it's what I love doing I want to have control over that and and know that every garment has inside out and I, I want want it to be the best it can be and um, so I do that because um, I enjoy it and for quality as well and then um, the factory locally has had similar problems um, finding a skill um, they've recently actually changed their business model into they're doing less cheaply um, cheap garments and, and more complex garments so he won't even produce t-shirts for me anymore his his pri- the price that he wants to be putting through is much higher so I think it's a similar similar kind of thing in the skills he's, he's struggling to find the skills um, and it's a higher quality of garment that he wants to produce so where does that leave your t-shirt oh I don't know <laughs> I haven't worked it out yet <laughs> okay any any offers from here Gratefully we'll make received. them there you are you see this is all going beautifully um, well I mean that's an interesting point in and of itself I mean you know would you I don't know if you know each other already, but would you have previously looked towards Caroline Fashion Enters? Would you look, or would you have thought, well, they're fast fashion and I'm slow fashion? No, I came across um, Fashion Enter a, a while ago when I was first setting up and I, I did get in touch with a few people. Um, I think working with a much smaller factory for me, starting out on my own, was just seemed like a, I don't know, easier option. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Going forward, I mean, it's local, it's really ethical and yeah for sure absolutely because I mean this is a, this is a question for the the two people who really define themselves in a sort of slow fashion that's that's part of your brand ethos and what you stand for do you think that um a slow fashion is a little bit siloed so it's a little bit sort of separate and out there and sets itself apart from the rest of the industry so there isn't much cross-pollination usually there's a purity about it sometimes I might have a certain customer that likes to kind of follow a, a slow fashion rule but as I as I set up my business I kind of had I guess more slow fashion processes in place because that's how I wanted to run my business and so I never really at the beginning really said I was slow fashion I just had the ethos and the values behind me and then as I guess it became more of a buzzword I started to say actually I am a slow fashion brand um, what about you, Camusa? Yeah, no, similarly. Um, the nature of producing in London and with the fabrics that I'm sourcing means the price point is higher and therefore I'm going to be selling less because not everyone wants to pay over £100 for a shirt. Um, so that makes it slower for me in terms of the speed of selling. Um, and yeah, that I guess the quality defines um, the fact that it's slow not not saying that fast fashion is poorer quality but when you feel the fabrics i'm sourcing and it, it does feel like a different garment um to something you'd find on the high street yeah and it strikes me that you're you know you're very much in the palm of the the factory that you use and you have a relationship with did you i don't know if you heard kate's 
talk about her onesie journey. No, but, no I didn't. No. So she, she. I'm not, I'm not trying to scare you, but initially, you know, her, her, um, her supplier. She couldn't, she couldn't work with them for, for various reasons. They weren't making what she wanted. So she eventually set up her own. <laughs> I mean, is that something that you've considered or thought about? I, I would love to. Yeah. Um, at the moment, I don't need to, but I have thought. I mean, it was a business risk relying on. Well, I, I do have two factories, but. Um, and my main one his restructuring recently was he did lose a lot he, he let go of a lot of clients and I made the cut luckily but that's a big risk, business risk um, so finding other alternatives and then and then maybe setting up something on my own I mean I have a studio next to my shop and that's where a lot of people do think we make everything next door and we don't um, I don't know I'd have to work out the logistics um, it would lead the brand in a really different route um, I teach workshops next door so I have that making element to the business it's a shop and a studio within the studio it's my working space day to day and I get people in and I teach shirt making at the weekends so it's already that that makey feel to it it's a working studio and people like coming in to learn I don't know maybe one day that could be actually making stuff for the shop as well I'm not sure well at your own risk obviously I didn't influence you in any way so I don't know what I'm talking about okay uh, Julia, I mean, this, I'd, I'd like to talk about the feasibility of the supply chain in the UK. So listening, you know, to Henrietta here, it's, it's almost like she has to audition for her factory at some point. Like, who's, who holds the power here? Who holds all the cards? Um, I, I think that's difficult to say, but I, I guess the retailer does hold quite a lot of those cards in many, many cases. But what I would say about that is it, it sort of harks back to what Caroline was saying about... Um, education and skills training I think in in retail new buyers are growing up in a business that sources very little product from the UK so I think there's a huge piece about education um, in terms of educating those those young buyers assistant buyers as they're coming through the business as to what's available in the UK um, and I recently took um, a group of our buyers assistants assistant buyers designers um, on a little bus tour um, to see what was available. So we visited a sewing unit, a print works, um, a knitting plant, various other places um, in and around Leicester, as it as it happens. And we, you know, we have a factory there that we use very regularly that turn things around in about six weeks or so, five to six weeks, depending on where the fabric's coming from. Um, and you can see the penny dropping because they're not really getting exposure to that level of understanding while they're sat in the office. So really just getting getting them out there and understanding what is available in the UK, I think that's a huge stepping stone to getting where we want to go, really. Did you charter a bus or were you literally waiting for the 214 to Loughborough? <laughs> I, no, I rented chartered. a bus okay. and a driver. <laughs> we went. Off you went. Caroline, what are you sort of nodding there. Well, I agree with that. Um, young buyers, assistant, assistant buyers, they don't, they've never been in a factory before. Um, they don't know the whole process from fabric, cutting, finishing, uh, machining. Um, and we actually do tours of our factory for, for these buyers, assistants. And we take them through the whole process. And it's a really, 
the feedback we get is amazing because you know they've not had any exposure to that type of thing before and we're really adding you know in a couple of hours we're adding to, to their education enormously so I, I firmly believe in what you're doing are there any buyers or assistant buyers here yes yes anyone been on the bus tour no <laughs> would you like to go on the bus tour you'd be inter- you'd be open to it yeah good okay do we have any uh, questions i'd love to get some questions from all of you guys look at the crowd you've attracted by the way uh, you must have some questions yes great thank you if you put your hand up and we'll get you a microphone oh sorry <laughs> sorry andy uh if you, yeah great thank you Hiya, um, we're assistant buyers for Oasis. Um, realistically, do you think that a British production line is achievable in fast fashion in terms of making margin and making profits? Caroline, would you like to start? Absolutely, because we're here and we've been going for 13 years. So, yes, it is. We have to design into the styles and make them factory friendly because obviously, you know, living wage in the UK is a lot different to Asia. Um, But yeah, absolutely. Um, We are a viable proposition for all of the customers I've mentioned. And we get repeats. So they don't just do the trial with us and then give the repeats offshore. We get the repeats as well. Could you just unpick what you said then about, you know, design into the styles? Like, so what would that look like? What does that look like? Okay, so um, sometimes we get styles to make that are very complicated. We reduce the amount of work content in the style, but we keep the essence of the style. So we don't take a complicated dress and make it into a just straight shift dress. Um, so we keep the styling, but we just construct it as, as well as we can to make it quick on the production lines. But there will be some compromises within yeah, that Yes, so um, we do jersey dresses, and often we are asked to do jersey dresses with a zip-in. We construct the garments, so you don't need to, to put a zip-in, but it still looks exactly the same. Julia, what do you think? Um, I would agree with that in terms of the the more complicated the garment gets, the more technical the garment gets, the more difficult it is to produce in a country where, you know, wages are higher, basically. So we produce quite a lot of, um, as Caroline was talking about, things like jersey dresses, leggings, T-shirts, that type of product. We would really struggle to produce, say, um, outerwear um, as in sort of coats, jackets, that sort of product. Denim's quite difficult because there's a lot of processes involved in it. So although there are companies that make those products in the UK, it's very difficult for us to source them from them because of the cost. Um, so it, it does tend to be some slightly simpler garments that we're... And, and ones where the fabric is either available locally here in the UK, and there are fabric knitters, fabric weavers here, um, or fabric that we can import from not so far away, so maybe Turkey or that, that sort of route for the fabric. So when we when we have a zipless society, we'll know that onshoring has happened and to a massive extent. That will be the giveaway. Did you guys want to add anything? Um, I think it also it depends whether you're going direct to consumer or if you're wholesaling. Like I've had a lot of, it's been quite difficult wholesaling to, to brands just because the cost price is higher and the shop needs to make their, their margin. Um, so I think it, it does depend with how you're selling the garment as well. 
Yeah, I also think I've had the um, the design well designing down to make it quicker. That's something that I'm stay away from. It, a shirt is a shirt, and I don't want to make it any. Um, easier to make or quicker to make because every detail I want done sort of to a tailored standard um, so yeah so that's another side of it is is my products are much more complex um, and that's that's what sets them apart and that's what brings up the price and therefore it's not fast um, it's higher price and it's slower fashion so you've designed in the detail yeah it's part absolutely. of what you do yeah yeah yeah, yeah totally okay okay any more Lucy did you yes Hi, thanks guys for being the guys who are throwing all these questions at you. Um, I just wanted to ask a quick question um, uh, on the M&Co and the percentage of production that would go offshore versus into the UK. And from that, question number two, um, the product that then comes into the UK, do you have to make a substantial margin sacrifice? So I guess there's pros and cons and, you know, the, the panel has been brilliant at highlighting some of the challenges with regard to manufacturer, cost price, selling price, etc, etc. And I just wondered whether that mix between offshore and UK, whether in the nine years you've been there, whether you've seen changes and within that changes coming from offshore coming back into the UK or vice versa, and whether there is a different, the reason why I'm asking about margin, whether there's different decisions about why things might be coming back to the UK, not just purely from a margin perspective, but maybe around turnaround, um, dare I say it, carbon footprinting, reduction of supply chain management, et cetera, et cetera, ethics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't want to put too many words in your mouth, but you know where I'm coming from. Okay, so, I mean, essentially, our UK production is still a tiny percentage of what we do. Um, I would say it's probably less than 5% currently. Um, it has grown over the past nine years, um, but it, ha it has a long way to go. And, and one of those barriers to growth is the margin. Um, there's a limit to how much we can buy on it. And we, we know we're going to make a, a lower margin generally on product that we're buying in the UK. But as you say, there are other benefits. So one of the benefits is smaller minimums. Um, you know, we, in, in buying less and, and sort of learning about the product here in the UK with a very small minimum, we make less mistakes. Um, therefore, we're not buying volume on products that then don't sell, which then contributes to the markdown level. Um, so that would be one of the big advantages about um, UK sourcing. It does um, allow us to trade more quickly. So if if a particular trend comes on board, and they tend to they tend to come very fast, reach a peak, and and die very fast as well. So if we're producing stock in the UK, it allows us to play into that that sort of movement of trend through a through its life cycle. Um, but as you say, I think you know the margin and the the cost implications of buying in the UK are one of the biggest barriers to that that growth and how we make UK manufacturing more competitive is going to be you know a, a big factor in in continuing to grow that business any ideas or have you heard any any bright ideas if, if I had if I had a crystal ball if I had all the ideas I would have done it long before now but we are you know we are working much more closely with the UK manufacturers that we do have and we don't have many but we, 
we spend a lot of time with them and we work very very closely to get to so again it, I mean I guess it's the same wherever you're working in the world that a lot of the development and the um, the way you can take that business for, forward really comes down to the relationships that you build with those suppliers um, so it doesn't matter where they are it, it is all about relationship there has been some suggestion and we you know we heard it we heard a tale actually from from Kate and the, the, the all in one this this morning that sometimes uh, UK suppliers are not as agile and as easy to work with as we would all hope is that a myth has it changed I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that um, I think there are Again, wherever you go in the world, there are good, good manufacturers and bad manufacturers. It's about working with the ones that you really believe in and the ones that you believe can deliver what you're looking for at the right price, in the right level of quality, um, at the right sort of pace, I guess. Um, you would like more choice, presumably. Yes, I would say we, we are... I mean, we are, I suppose, a little bit limited on choice, particularly in terms of certain categories of product here in the UK. But that it, it's not that those businesses aren't here. It's more that the, the ones that are here maybe aren't working in our price demographic, I suppose. Um, so, we, you know, we have big decisions to make about where we place business. And um, there are a lot of factors that, that feed into that. Um, and in terms of trends, you talked about trends. Um, you know, sometimes onshoring is good for getting these trends out quickly. Can you give an example of a recent trend? Just because I'm always fascinated by what the really, really quick trends are with the really short windows. I mean, I, I guess the, for us, the trend for, for because a large part of what I do is kids wear. Um, the trend for particular licences. You know, they come and go quite quickly and we produce quite a lot of that product here in the UK. We have manufacturers here that, that particular, in particular print in the UK. Um, and I guess, the, well, the current trend for sequins that flip, two-way sequins basically that flip up and down so you get two different designs in one garment, that has been a huge, huge impact on our kidswear business. And being able to do a little bit of that here in the UK has really helped. I didn't even know that was a thing. I've never even seen it. Wow. Okay, and, and just out of the 5%, so that it's a, a bit less than 5% you said that you that you were doing in the UK, what segment is that? Is that mainly kids wear? Um, I would say on our... Uh, it, there is some within women's wear. Um, obviously, we're working with Fashion Enter, but um, it's mostly, I would say, girls and teen um, that we are buying. I would say our girls wear probably around about the 15, 15% UK sourced. Um, again, because we're constantly tapping into the trends that the kids, kids are much more adventurous than their parents when it comes to what clothing they want to wear. So the speed at which you do that and the, the trialling is very, very important to our kids wear business. Hence the two-way sequence. Yes, much more adventurous. Um, uh, for uh, Henrietta and Genevieve, it, it, do you think that um, is slow fashion immune from trend, or does it does it have a trend part of it? I mean, I don't um, design for trends, but I guess with PR, it's, you know, there's always you can you, you know you can focus 
a certain piece into a trend, um, like to get into like Hello or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't follow trends, but maybe also because it ends the life cycle of the product um, a lot quicker. Yeah, I don't. I don't think about trends at all. Um, I mean, maybe subconsciously, I'm, it, I'm sort of designing with that in mind. But um, if I'm designing, I want it to be functional and something that goes with everything and want to wear for years, literally years. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I, but since I've started, I, I my overshirt, which is a sort of it's an overshirt, it's a light jacket, um, has been the most popular seller for two and a half years, and then I'm not that I started the trend at all, but that workerwear kind of vibe is starting to trickle through to the high street and other brands as well. So I'm kind of now in that little trend, but I, I don't, I don't really take much notice of the trends. Does it feel uncomfortable then to be in the, to be in a trend or starting a trend <laughs> or spearheading a trend? I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm close enough to it. I, I think it's just, it's very, very simple designs. So really classic, really simple. I don't think I'm too close to it at all. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Does anyone have any more questions? I'm sorry. I feel like I'm ignoring this side, but no one's said anything yet. So we'll stay with this side. Okay. Great. Um, it's a question probably for all of you um, regarding education. Do you think that schools and career advisors, if they still have them, should be doing a lot more to promote careers in the fashion industry? Yes, Caroline. Please. Well, I, w I would certainly like to see it, um, you know, not just careers in stitching. There are so many different careers within the fashion industry. And we've actually got in, in one of our resource rooms, we've got the whole garment life cycle up on the wall. And there are so many different jobs. A lot of people just think it's buyer and designer. There are so many different jobs. There's garment tech, quality controller, you know, the, the, the cutters, finishers. There's so many different jobs. So um, I think they need their eyes opened. Um, and uh, we often have tours of um, school children coming around the factory just to, just to see what we do there. Yes. Um, I would, well, I would sort of add to that by saying that I think schools sort of perpetuate a a more traditional model of education and I think what we've got in the industry now are some newer um, ways of getting into fashion it's not necessarily that to be a buyer or merchandiser you have to have a degree anymore um, we have businesses like the Fashion Retail Academy where I've been lucky to, lucky enough to do a bit of teaching um, and students coming through there um, after sort of GCSEs or AS levels um, coming straight out of there and, and we have employed quite a number of them at M&Co. Um, so they haven't necessarily got a degree, but they have an absolute flair and a passion for the business. And I think that almost, it, it's equally as important as having the education. It's having an absolute passion for it. It's not, it's not really something you can get into unless you really love it. Um, I, I actually go and speak to a lot of my local schools, uh, so for like GCSE and A-level, um, and just to kind of talk about the different career paths and the different job opportunities there are. Um, and normally I start with knitwear and they can't believe that knitting is a thing. So it is it, like, just small things like that, just making a younger generation aware that there is um, lots of different opportunities and different career paths that you know, are really, really exciting, not, not just the designer or the buyer. 
What they didn't know knitting was a thing. How did they think the garment? Oh, they just think I'm crazy that I'm, I, my role was, you know, making knitted garments. Um, and I always show them, I do um, like sparkly socks. So I show them stuff like that, which gets them a bit more interested. And then by the end of it, they love knitwear. So. <laughs> and what sort of questions do they ask you? Um, I, more, I don't really ask too many questions, probably because they're a bit kind of like taken back. But more that, um, I guess the kind of life cycle of a garment they're always quite shocked that there are so many roles in between you know the first design to the product in the shop floor I think they're always quite shocked that there are so many people involved in that um, and you know each role is very different from one to the other Henrietta yeah I think I mean schools that's a, a really big one but also within university um, I went to London College of Fashion and there was very little on sustainability um, when I was there five years six years ago um, yeah so I mean in terms of job diversity you do touch on loads of different jobs at different parts of the industry but I guess sustainability was massively lacking back then I'm not sure hopefully they're teaching more about that now but um, I w- it was crazy to come out of uni and then learn how fabric is woven <laughs> when you're designing things made out of fabric is ridiculous um, so hopefully I don't know yeah I think universities also as well as schools have a long way to go I think uh, uh, London College of Fashion would say they now have the Centre for Sustainable Fashion and they have things like the uh, Kering Scholarship. And so, so there would be some, some improvement there, I would definitely think. Yes. Oh, sorry, there's a gentleman here and then we'll come to you. And then over this side, exciting, yes. Hi, hello. Uh, hi, hello. Julie. Uh, early on, you mentioned retailers hold some powers. And my question is, this power is an enabler or disabler of supply chain in UK. That's why suppliers cannot maybe uh, manufacture or produce. So what do you think? Ooh, I mean, again, it comes back to relationship, I think. I mean, it, as a retailer, you have to take responsibility. You know, there is an element of responsibility that comes with every sort of, you know, being in this position. And I think really it's about working together to create the best possible outcome for both supplier and retailer. You know, a, a supplier is, is, is no good to anybody if, if they're not in a good financial position, if they're not able to contribute. And if, if you know, if we're trying to, to make them do something that they're not naturally capable of doing. So, I, I, you know, I think there's a huge responsibility on the retailers to actually in a way that supports and um, encourages their suppliers to sort of bring new things to the table and to, to, to develop relationships that way. But you need a lot of knowledge to make that call, don't you? You need to know these suppliers inside out yeah, in a way. Yeah, I, I, you know, there, there is a definite, um, you know, I, I guess there's that thing about the, the fewer suppliers that we deal with and we try not to deal with too many because you're stretching... The, you know the buyers so far in trying to get them to sort of build those relationships with so many people um, but really it is about spending time with those suppliers spending time in the factories themselves understanding their supply chain where they're getting their fabrics from understanding all of the, the things that sort of go into that melting pot of um, 
of stuff that you, you know that they have to deal with when you're actually you know negotiating on a price or deciding which fabric to put into a garment. Um, and yeah, yes, there is a lot of knowledge. Required. And is there, t- is there time to assess these things and really are they prioritised or is it really just still about driving the price down? Because I think that would possibly be what you were sort of slightly getting, uh, getting at. I think it's a combination of, of both factors. I mean, you, you know, you can push and push and push on price, but really, unless the supplier is making a profit, unless that manufacturer is making a profit, they're not going to be... That isn't sustainable. So, you know, you've got to work towards a solution which works for both supplier and retailer. Caroline? Um, Yes, I would agree with that. Um, The thing that we have the problem most is continuity. So we're really, really busy at the moment. In January, we were dead. We had no orders. How can you keep a factory going if you haven't got continuous work? And that that is the same problem for every single factory. And obviously, um, our customers can't give us work if, if the things aren't selling in the shops and, you know, they're on markdown or on sale. But it is a real problem having continuity. But I would say that generally our customers have got a lot better at understanding what what we do, what we're good at, what we're not so good at. Um, and there is a definite change. Uh, you know, we do work closer together now than we used to. What do you do to overcome the January blues, which obviously... Um, it, it, well, it's a real problem because, you know, we, we don't want to let our staff go home and not pay them you're going to lose your staff you've then got staff that have got mortgages to pay and no money to pay it with so we just basically tread water so there's no overtime um, you know only work nine till five Um, but it's a very tough time and it's getting tougher this is when you can put your t-shirts in (laughs) exactly Um, I've been working with my factory quite closely on this um, recently I suppose over the past six months I've changed how I work Um, I'm getting orders in through every couple of weeks we get a drop so and they're really small but he has he knows something else is coming up and there's a back that we know what's planned ahead and if the cash flow for one week we, I can't pay, we wait, we do it the next week. There's literally garments coming through at a really small rate, very, very regularly, and that's really helped. He knows he's got that work. And we, we cut in bulk and we produce a small amount, and he knows he's got the rest of that to produce in the next six months. So we'll do a small amount at a time. Actually, with both both my factories to do that. Um, so that uh, working with it, that really helps him. It really helps me with cash flow. Just running a small business, that's a really sustainable way for me to manage my money. So it's a sort of symbiotic relationship yeah, that you've got. Okay, great. Somebody had a question. Yes. Um, going back to the kind of topic of education, I'm just wondering what the panel think about um, the role that education has in shifting people's attitudes to the value they place on their clothes. Because we all know that you can shop ethically and sustainably really well if you have plenty of money to spend on the garments. But getting people to, to shift their attitude in terms of what they're happy to spend you know, to spend a little bit more on something. Um, and I'm wondering about the relationship between that that kind of attitude of the consumer and wh- how they think their clothes are made um, well, and I mean, what education as a whole can play in that. Okay, no, it's a good question. Um, Genevieve, if you've got uh, young people who didn't realise that knitting was a thing, <laughs> that would seem to be problematic, but maybe it's not. Um, I definitely do see it's a problem with a lot of the interns I get. They, you know, they buy from really cheap 
are websites and they often say to me that they're happy if they wear a top and they come home that night and it's still in one piece. And I can't get over that because I'm... I, you know, when I was a teenager their age, I used to have a job and I would wait, you know, save up my money and then buy that one piece that would last me a few years. So it's a completely different comparison to how me and my intern will think. And it is that kind of education and it needs to be talked about in food as well, like with fast food and, you know, buying local. Um, so I guess it's maybe, it's not just about fashion, it's how we buy as a society in, in everything we do. I, would, I, was, I found it strange that your interns would say that to you. <laughs> Don't they know what you, <laughs> what you do? I guess it's nice that they can chat. And, yes. and, and I do ask the questions, you know, where do you buy your clothes? Why do you buy this? So I do prompt the questions as well. OK. Anyone else got anything to add on that? Yes, Julia. I think, well, having a 20-year-old daughter... Um, I see her and her friend. It's about, I think, the Instagram generation. They, they wear it once, see themselves photographed in it, and then they don't want to be photographed in it again, so it goes. So I think there's something around, maybe, you know, it, it's a, a, a social media campaign that we need to be getting behind to help re-educate, I suppose, the way they, the way they think about clothing, the way we all think about clothing, really. I try and be as open and transparent as possible with um, my customers. So I went to India uh, last January, not yeah before, and um, yeah, I was that out there photographing and sharing on the sort of literally that day what I was learning and seeing which was the spinning and the cotton farming and the weaving and natural dyeing and I was sharing videos and pictures and people really appreciated that and they really enjoyed watching it um, and then I think they can understand the, the final garments a bit better I think people yeah just knowing more about the garments and where they come from and just also just buying less uh, people I mean it, people want to be ethical with with their buying just just don't buy just don't just and then buy one good thing every now and again um we don't need more stuff <laughs> so i mean some people have, have, have um uh, i gave evidence to the environmental audit committee to the um uh, inquiry into fast fashion for example and one of the things that everyone seemed very keen on was stuff like depop so and it seemed to chime with younger consumers, citizens, because we're not just consumers, but in the way that it also encourages sort of entrepreneurial, slightly more analysis of the garment and resale and all the rest of it. And it was reckoned to be quite a vibrant community. Do we think that rather than actually going and trying to educate people in schools about don't do this, do this, is it better to give people alternatives that might be encouraging the slowing down of fashion but not necessarily calling it slow fashion. As you said, Genevieve, you don't refer to what you do as slow fashion necessarily. Yeah. Um, I guess it, yeah, it does need to, I guess, be something in your kind of everyday day life. Like Depop, I think, it, you know, it's great that people are, they don't want to wear it again because they've been photographed in it, so they resell it to someone else who will love it. That's, I don't know, quite a, a good thing, definitely. Um, and it's using their skills. I know because I did a workshop with them that it depends how you hold the trainer in the photograph and yeah. stuff like that. So there's all, new, you know, it's, and you mentioned social media, but it's all very social media focused. Rather than trying to re-educate in an old style, is there a way of making this 
lesser consumerism, lesser impact, more enticing, I guess, is what I'm saying, rather than just going back to first principles all the time, which don't seem to have the traction we need. Yeah, I know what you mean, because using the words sustainable and ethical and those words we hear all over again we know we need to be more of that and it, it can be a turn off um, that, Depop's a rehash of vintage and that's um, vintage and second hand that I think and I think that's become more fashionable recently anyway um, I'm not sure it's a struggle it, it's um trying to yeah trying to get the the ethical and sustainable side fashion more desirable that's just what we're all trying to do so i don't really know the answer making it really nice really visually appealing and um punchy and memorable just trying to do your best as a brand i'm not sure about other platforms and um yeah other ways of doing that okay thank you very much for the question and we are coming to this side thank you so much for representing this whole side. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question for Julia. Um, what do you look for when you are sourcing a UK supplier or manufacturer? Um, first and foremost, we look for um, a supplier that meets all the ethical criteria that we have um, as a business. Um, as I said earlier, it doesn't really matter where you're making in the world. Um, the the you know the responsibility to pay, you know, to, to pay your workers fairly, to treat people fair, all of that sort of thing comes comes into that would be the first step. Um, and then we would look for someone or a, a supplier that is offering us something that's a bit unique that may maybe not you know everywhere else on the high street. So some something that has a you know a more you know unique side to it perhaps in terms of design or creativity um, somebody that can offer us support in terms of that design input technical input um, in terms of the fit and the, um, the the quality of a garment so you know obviously every every manufacturer we're looking at does things slightly differently so we would look at a number of different criteria um, and obviously price comes into that as well so you know price is a part of that equation how do you find suppliers do they come to you or do you go to loads of trade shows or what how do you find them um, a bit of both I would say I probably get a hundred approaches a week from suppliers all over the world I don't get many from UK suppliers funnily enough um, but yeah, I'm constantly bombarded with emails from suppliers, but yeah, not so much the UK side of business. Possibly because people are thinking that M and Co as a sort of quite low end of the market really is not going to be able to afford the prices that most of the UK manufacturers are, you know, are having to charge. But you're here today to say you've got loads of money and you want to spend it in the UK. <laughs> no. Okay. Does anyone have any final questions as we draw this panel session to a close? Are you just moving your pen? Or point. Oh, yes. Just one more point. Sorry. I think um, for myself, um, just starting out in the industry, I work with um, kids wear hair accessories. I find that everything is made in China. So if I'm looking for a manufacturer, I searched in the UK, minimum order was a thousand. I looked for a, chi um, a Chinese factory, they can make hundred units for me. So I just feel like everything is sort of 
geared towards China, everything is made in China. And I think that's an imbalance in industry because I feel, how is that going to be sustainable in the long term? So if there's problems in China, suddenly all UK, I guess, um, retailers are suffering. I think that's over, overall, that's my point of view as a potential um, manufacturer. Well, it's a, it's a really good point, but aren't things supposed to be changing? So there's a China first strategy, all the sourcing um, uh, trend forecasting I read is always saying how China's uh, becoming less of a player. I don't know if anyone's got any uh, comments, if that's actually true. I mean, in that particular instance, I would say that the accessory side of the business is probably much more China biased than any other area of the business that I'm buying currently. Um, so it, it would perpetuate that, really. There's not an awful lot from, you know, from what I'm seeing available in the UK of kids' hair accessories and that type of product. So would you like to source more from the UK? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, what would the advice be, Caroline, if, if, your, if your product segment is just does seem to be colonised by China and, that, that you know, what, what would your advice be? Um, well, obviously we do... Our minimum is one, so we'll make any any quantity you like. Um, you've got to also think about how are you going to quality control your garments in China? Are you going to fly over there and, and look at them? Are you going to trust that what they send you as a production sample is really what the production is going to be like? So you have to balance up um, all of those risks. I'm not saying there aren't excellent factories in China, absolutely, but if you're starting out, how are you going to ensure that what, what you get is you know, what you're paying for? Okay, and you do accessories as well, do you? No, not oh, right. I thought I've got you another client now, which is my second of the panel. Okay, I'm going to draw this panel to a close now, which usually means we get five questions. Just testing. Does anyone have a question? Because I don't want you to miss out. I knew you had a question. I just knew it. So um, this is actually mainly for Henrietta. So do you think that you could be in fast fashion but still label yourself as all the qualities that you do as well? Or do you think that once you get to that fast pace, you have to then kind of compromise or sacrifice those things that you were talking about? Um, well, my garment is, well, my garments are very intricately designed. They're, they're, they take a long time to make. Um, the quality of the fabric is really beautiful and that's a much higher price than what would be considered fast fashion. Um, for me to be doing fast fashion, I would need to I wouldn't be compromising on either of those two things. I would just be producing a lot, lot more. Um, wouldn't mean I wouldn't be able to work with my current factory, I'd have to find a new one. I'd be the price of production would go down with the um, the higher volumes, but not 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 to the point where I can bring the price down to say 50, 40 pounds per unit. Um, so I don't think, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna, my business and my brand will ever be at the point of, of competing with fast fashion. It's not my intention, it, it's what I want to be doing is producing very like small quantities of really high quality garments and um, to people that really appreciate it I don't want astronomical growth I don't want to be producing hundreds and thousands like thousands of pieces um, so it's not really something I'm interested I don't want the brands go in that direction um, 
So, I, I mean, at, at the moment, I'm taking my business step by step, and uh, I can't. I don't even know what I want in five years' time, to be honest. Um, but it won't be anything to do with fast fashion. Fast fashion. And Caroline, just to come to you, because you said that you don't have to compromise quality for fast fashion. So would you argue that you can still use and do use the amazing fabrics that Henrietta's talking about? Um, yes, but um, that would be in our fashion studio that we would do that. And there were only eight machinists there, so there, were, there would be a finite amount of garments that they could make. Fast and slow. Can we have it all, Julia? I'd like to think so, but I think we, we've got some huge challenges ahead of us in terms of the, the way we produce garments and the way we sell garments. Um, I mean, the industry is in, the retail industry is in turmoil. So, you know, I think what, what happens as we go through this process and as we come out, you know, whether there's an end to it or not, but as we come out the other side, you know, it, it'll be dependent upon which retailers are left um, because there's there's people disappearing on a almost weekly basis at the moment. So, I guess the process of natural selection might might come into it. Wow, reached natural selection already, Genevieve. Just just finish finish for us here by just saying, you know, where do you think that fast and slow can ever be combined? Um, I think it can if we um, invest into the skills and have you know, more skilled workers and more factories in the UK, then I think it definitely can be a place for both. Okay, thank you. Thank you to all of you for coming and listening. And thank you to our brilliant panel, to Genevieve, to Julia, to Caroline and Henrietta. Round of applause for our panel, please. Thank you for listening to the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there's also bonus episodes occasionally. So don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so that you get notified every time a new episode goes live. And if you enjoyed the show, I would really love it if you left me a, just a little review on iTunes. The more reviews this podcast receives, the more people will discover it and the more we can spread the word about making in the UK. Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye bye.